you know, sometimes you start with medications, you get someone to a place where they can start going to psychotherapy and then they start doing psychotherapy and then they get to a place where they can start exercising. And so I like to work with people longitudinally where like, you know, after months, they're to a place where they're out of their depression and then they start to hopefully move towards some of their goals and desires. And, and then, um, you know, once, once someone is out of their depression, like let's say it's just the first episode of depression and they're completely out after six months, you can start to bring them down on medications and go slow. Cause remember every six weeks you have epigenetic changes. So there's changes in the brain and those changes both, both help the medications work and they help, they change when people get off the medication. So I like to make medication changes slow, um, outpatient. And so we make an adjustment, check in six weeks later, see how it's going. It's going okay. Okay, let's go down a little bit more. Hi friends, it's Brittany Moses, and you're listening to the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast. This podcast is a spinoff of my blog, BrittanyAMoses.com, where I talk about the intersection of faith and mental health and how that applies to our everyday lives. You're listening to episode 14. Hey guys, welcome back. So excited to share today's episode with you. Really today we're just kind of doing a deep dive into mental health 101, psychoeducation, kind of really taking on the clinical perspective of mental health. And I always think that this is super important because we've had such an unbalanced view of mental health for so many years, especially in the church, Um, just kind of maybe oversimplifying some of these things, which it's not just the church, it's just in the world, right? As we've evolved more, as we've gained technology, we've been able to kind of look more into the brain and gather more research and information. We understand more about the brain and more about, you know, biopsychosocial uh, health when it comes to mental health. And so it's always great when I can have someone come on who's a clinician who can really, you know, conversate with me on a deep dive with these things. And so that's what we're doing today. And I think it's important because when it comes to these things like severe anxiety, severe depression, at least it's diagnosable, right? Or bipolar disorder or especially schizophrenia, a lot of times I think people who don't really understand all of the dynamics kind of think that it's just all in people's heads, you know, that it's something that they can just change by saying a prayer or change by just thinking differently or believing more or having more faith uh, when really a lot of these are physical issues, they're health issues. And as soon as we start understanding mental health as a health issue, I believe that's going to not only destigmatize our views, but it's going to give us a better understanding and compassion of how to approach those who are going through a health issue, just like any, any other other physical health, right? So we're going to talk more about that. And today, my guest is Dr. David Pewter, who is so awesome. I'm so honored to have him. I love his podcast, Psychiatry and Psychotherapy. So for any other, you know, brain nerds and psych nerds like me, definitely go check it out. You're going to fall in love with it. He has so much amazing content there. Uh, But aside from that, Dr. Pewter went to UC Berkeley and majored in molecular and cellular biology while competing on the Cal rowing team. And after he went to Loma Linda School of Medicine and subsequently spent a year doing internal medicine, he then completed his psychiatry residency at Loma Linda. 
He ended up joining the faculty of Loma Linda, where he is the medical director of a partial program and intensive outpatient program called MEN, and they support patients and their and their families in maintaining or regaining emotional health and balance during the process of a significant medical illness or treatment. Dr. Peter is married with two children and spends most of his free time playing with them or cooking for them, and he's an awesome guy. I know you guys are going to love a lot of the content that we've shared today, so without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. All right, so I have got Dr. Peter with me, flesh and blood, sitting right in front of me. How cool is that? It's great. <laughs> Welcome to the uh, Inland Empire. Thank you. Welcome to Redlands. It's pretty cool because I had been listening to your podcast, I want to say just as of this past month, um, and I love it. I love, you have so many, like what haven't you covered? on your podcast you have so much content yeah so i've covered quite a bit of mental health topics yeah and i'm i have more definitely more an endless supply of future topics i can go into i'm sure about i'm sure i have this ridiculous drive of a commute into ucla almost every morning and so that's my time to either pop in an audio book or listen to a podcast. So I got to listen to some of yours about micro emotions, micro expression, expressions yeah. and things like that. It's like one thirtieth of a second, one tenth of a second. Yes. And, um, you know, if you, the average person cannot see right. these go on very often. Yeah. Uh, you might be able to see big emotions, you know, or you might be able to feel something. Uh, but um, these are going on and it helps us kind of mm-hmm. attune to someone else's experience. So we're not only always in our own head. Yeah. I downloaded the app and definitely took the little quiz. And How I, are was, you doing? I was okay. Are you, are I you had hitting much better yet? hopes for myself. I'm getting better. Okay. Yeah. That's good. That's good. When you- <laughs> I know people listening are like, what are they talking about? So you have to go to his podcast and which I'm going to link in the show notes to see what we're talking about and listen to his episode on micro expressions. Yeah. Well, today we're going to be kind of having this, I want to say mental health 101 psychoeducation. This is something that I've been wanting to do on the podcast, just kind of covering the basics of what is mental health? What is mental illness? I feel like it's very abstract of a term for people who maybe aren't necessarily in the field or studying it. Um, just what does anxiety or depression look like to the point where you should take it seriously? Just kind of some of the basics. And so I'm excited to finally have an episode to get that out there, especially for lay people, those who might be in the church and encountering it regularly, or even just have loved ones that want to know what's going on and what they can look out for. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So for starters, why don't you tell everyone a little bit more about yourself and what your mission is and even your background, what made you get, what led you into psychiatry and all that good stuff? Yeah. So I probably didn't, I I didn't think I was going to be a psychiatrist. So I went into medical school thinking I was going to be a surgeon, uh, an orthopedic surgeon. And I spent some time in Haiti, um, a couple couple summers. uh, And the more time that I spent in surgery, the more I realized I was more interested in just the human connection. Mm -hmm. So there were like Haitian residents and medical students, and I loved talking with them. Um, And so, you know, the more I thought, and the more I experienced in medical school, you know, doing 
internal medicine, pediatrics. I thought I was more sort of drawn to those types of fields. And so I actually applied for med peds to be like an internal medicine doctor, a pediatrician. And, um, you know, there was this moment where uh, it didn't go that way. Mm. I actually didn't get into any of the programs and I kind of scrambled into a one-year internal medicine spot. And um, the first thing that came to my head when I got that sort of rejection letter was psychiatry. And I had been avoiding it. Um, I uh, It was probably a little bit too close to home in some ways. Mm. And so I decided that I would do a couple more psychiatry rotations and consider if psychiatry or something like internal medicine was a better fit. And so I spent a year, most people don't spend a year sort of in between medical school and resident, you know, doing a psychiatry residency. And I did a year of internal medicine, did some psychiatry rotations, and I decided, you know, this was something that I wanted to do. Wow. That's amazing. I battle between clinical psych and psychiatry like every other day. Oh, I do. Wow. But I commend you because I, I'm constantly fascinated by the field. I'm, I don't know how much it aligns with my personality, but that's awesome. I, I Maybe I can convert you by the end of our discussion. <laughs> maybe you can. I'm just going to change my whole course. Well, that's really cool. And your podcast, you right. have a lot of resources for residents, for those who are students, for those who are in the field. Yeah. So fast forward, you know went through medical school, went through psychiatry residency, yeah. um, continued on at Loma Linda here. Actually, did, I did like a two-year um, uh, therapy like experience after post-residency um, where I went and got training for that. And then I um, became the medical director of a, a day treatment program. So we see we have people come in, you know, people with chronic pain, fibromyalgia, irritable bowel, chronic fatigue, TMJ, psychogenic seizures, so kind of more of the, if they have a medical problem, but then also kind of a, a psychiatric issue as well to come into the program. So that's part of my time. Do outpatient psychiatry, teach medical students, residents involved in research. And then um, about two years ago, I started the podcast. And the goal of that was just to do something called the multiplier effect. So how can I multiply the effectiveness of some of the, um, uh, you know, the good things that mental health has to offer. How can we get those things out there into the, into the minds of um, clinicians, future mental health professionals. And really, you know, I really think empathy and the ability to connect is trainable. Um, all the studies show that. And so I'm trying to sort of interlace normal psychiatry topics with those types of things as well. So, I think that's huge. Yeah. Like the the EQ, emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence, empathy, you know, yeah. your ability to connect with someone. Right. So much of that impacts um, whether your treatment is going to be effective. Right. That makes total sense because what I'm learning is even going through school is you can pass a test and you can be book smart, but being able to authentically connect with people in a way that is improvable in their outcomes and mm -hmm. there's a healthy relationship. That's something totally different. That's amazing. Yeah. It, and it's something that um, just like anything else, like if you want to get stronger, you know, you find the best coaches, you um, practice, you show up and slowly you'll get stronger. You know, this, yeah. the, the brain can change and improve and, 
you know, so I think working on yourself, doing your own work, right? Being in therapy and then also learning about um, like things like microexpression or mm -hmm. things like empathy, you know, there's a lot of improvement that can go on. Right. Wow. So I can already see like we could probably talk about a ton of things right now. Right. So I'm going to try, yeah. I'm going to self-discipline myself to come back. <laughs> um, and so when it comes to mental health and mental illness, I feel like for those who maybe aren't studying it or aren't in the world of mental health, that term can seem so abstract. And we use it on social media all the time, take care of your mental health. And But what does that mean? Like what is mental health and what is mental illness? Because those are two different things. Yeah, and this is, this is a really good, it's a good question. So mental health, you know, thriving, um, manifesting your talents, enjoying challenges, having a sense of peace, joy, patience, self-control, uh, meaningful connections, you know, a love relationship, intimacy, genuine caring, love for others, um, being able to receive feedback and give feedback well, um, close friendships, meaningful and purposeful community, belonging like a church or some other community like that, um, finding joy in mentoring others, empathy, good humor, you know? So these are all the things that come to my mind when I think of mental health. Right. It's, it's thriving, right? Yeah. It's yeah. thriving. And, you know, I don't want to, when people come to, to see me in particular, like, I don't want to leave them just where they're not thriving, you know? So I think like, you know, coaches, people who do like personal coaching, mm -hmm. they'll say like, we're not about mental illness, we're about mental health and we're about helping people thrive. Well, really a good therapist is about that as well. And that's, right. I get passionate about, about those things. And, you know, we measure those things and we try to think about the best way to get someone to those places, right? And so, you know, once someone, when someone comes to me, usually they're at like the worst of the worst. They're suicidal, they're depressed, they're, you know, having a psychotic break or some sort of thing like that. And once they get back to normal, then it's like, I'm thinking to myself, okay, how do I help this person thrive? How do I help them continue to grow? You know, right. how do I help them manifest their talents and abilities? How do I help the person maybe who hasn't dated at all? How do I help them start dating? Mm -hmm. You know, start maybe, what is the smallest step that this person can, can start, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. going down that pathway. <laughs> That's good. Because I think that there can be such a heavy focus on what's wrong. It's nice to balance that out with, you know, what's right about this person and how can I pull that out to also help bring up a fulfilling life that and, may affect these other areas and, and that some, are brought down. And sometimes people mm -hmm. focus on what is wrong as a way of connection. So, right. so if as a provider, I only give someone attention if they're sick, if they're weak, if they're depressed, then they will come back to me with those symptoms, even when they're better, even when I feel no depression from them. And that's something, by the way, if you're like a pastor and you're listening to this, because I know it's kind of a mix of spirituality mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. mental health. If you're a pastor listening to this, think about that. Because that if the only way that people get connection to you in your church is if they're in a crisis, you may get people who are in more crises. Right, right, and talking about the upsides as well. It's it's like how people get connection, right? So like right. in in my program in the men program here, we see a lot of people with um, chronic medical issues, and often chronic medical issues allow mm -hmm. them to salvage their marriage or salvage their family. I see. So their husband's about to leave them, and then 
the wife gets very sick and she gets in the hospital and now the husband's caretaking her again and he's taking care of her, you know? And then a couple years later, you know, there's another crisis and, you know, the kids are running away or the husband's about to leave. And then, you know, mom gets sick again. Right. Um, and so it's both like adaptive serving a purpose in their system, but actually it doesn't lead to the most thriving possible. Right. It's almost like enabling. I'm thinking of the word codependency. That's the word that comes to my mind. All those, all those words may describe some aspect of it. Right. So now mental illness. So yeah, mental illness is, um, you know, first of all, I think of the final common pathway of mental illness Mm -hmm. is the opposite of all those things we just talked about. So it's no joy, no humor, um, no belonging, no meaning. Um, It's really no relationships. Like so many of the patients that I see literally have, very few connections, mm-hmm. real connections with anyone. It's like they don't have, there's a lot of people out there without any friends. It's really hard to understand that if you're a person with a lot of friends, a lot of connections, a lot of meaningful relationships, but there are people out there who are living by themselves, lonely, isolated. And so this is true of the schizophrenic or the person with severe chronic depression. Um, they kind of end up in this final common pathway where they're isolated and alone lacking meaningful connections. And, um, you know, if they have schizophrenia, mental illness might look like there's positive symptoms, of hallucinations, delusions, racing thoughts. If the racing thoughts are like sort of bad things that they're believing about themselves. So a common auditory hallucination that's schizophrenic man will believe is, is you're stupid or you're, you're mm. and a female may believe hear, hear voices that tell them that they're ugly or that they're a whore or a prostitute. Um, so it's like those negative intrusive thoughts that come over and over again. Right. And then on top of those positive symptoms for schizophrenia, you have the negative symptoms. So you have things like apathy, lack of emotion, um, poor or non-existent social functioning. Yeah. And then you also have the negative or you have, so you have those negative types of symptoms. And then you have the cognitive symptoms, which are like the disorganized thoughts and n- not able to concentrate. Um, and it's really hard to fake disorganized thoughts. Like when you meet a schizophrenic patient, the thoughts are, it's like they, they're conjumbled. It's like the, the way that they talk to you is like a, a word salad is one way to describe it. It's like one, it's like this and then that, and this and then that. And it's like, you can't follow them. Right. So, right. So yeah, so this is like a picture of mental illness, right? It's like yeah. it's like that sort of final common pathway that leads to that isolation. Right. And it's and it's when you think about it, how much isolation can be such a driver underlying all these things, just making them even worse. It may, yeah. So it's like it both drives them into it, right? And right. Then, once they're into it, then they're more isolated. Because you're withdrawing even more, right? Right. It's like a cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So I had one patient, yeah. for example, who like for five years of working with him, the first five years of working with him, he lived by himself in an apartment with no friends. Mm. And he would sometimes go to Starbucks and he would see people talking and he'd say, how do they get three people together and have a conversation? Like that was so beyond him. The only human contact he had was with his mother who talked yeah. to him like once every two weeks or so. And he lived alone in this apartment. And for him, after getting on medications, now this guy has like schizophrenia, so he needed medications. Um, after getting on medications f- and getting on the right medications, um, 
he got to a place where now he's like in a church,、mm-hmm. he's married, and he's adopted some kids. It's、mm, a fully functioning life. He, and he works, he has a job. He like、yeah. was alone in an apartment for, for 10 years, only contact, his mother. And for five years, no treatment.、Mm-hmm. And then after multiple years of treatment, he slowly rebuilt his life. And, you know, and it's that sort of story, which, like, if you don't see those patients, you may believe like, that psychiatrists don't know what they're doing, or it's like all, it's all in your brain, or it's like you can、yeah. pray your way out of that. I mean, this was like a very, he was like a very strong spiritual person before、right. his psychotic break. And after he still is. And, and, and it's like, it's hard. And I definitely want to circle back around to this.、Um, like you were saying, how there is, first of all, treatment for hope, right? That I can't remember the exact statistics, but when someone starts getting treatment, I think it's something like 80 or 90% of the time they see signs of relief, at least from the state that they were originally in. Correct me if I'm wrong. Especially if they're willing to,、right. to work with a therapist, work with psychiatry,、right. do, do, make some changes in their lifestyle. I, I would say if someone's willing to do that work, it, I would say I don't, even the worst of the worst cases that came into me, like cases where I would go home at night and like I would have nightmares, like this person's going to kill themselves.、Mm-hmm. Like this is a scary. Scary suicidal patient with no hope, no connections, like on, a, a ton of abuse in the background, and like a very suicidal patient. And,、um, and then, like, it took this person about two years to rebuild their life. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know? And、um, at first, like, I, you know, I was pretty young in my career. I was like, is, is this one of those people that's going to kill themselves? And you just can't, like, no matter what you do. Because this person had already received a lot of psychiatric treatment.、Yeah. You know, they're coming into me having had, you know, multiple psychiatrists and multiple therapists, and they come in and it's like, okay, what do you do? And so, what we do in our system is we do a lot of day treatment programs. So, they're literally in therapy like seven hours, eight hours a day, five days a week for months. And she went back and forth between there and a psychiatric hospital for、um, about a year to two years. And、um, somewhere in there, she had some breakthroughs.、Mm. And now she's like living her life,、um, you know, has animals, has an apartment, has a job. I haven't, heard, I haven't heard from her in a couple of years. But like when she called me about three years after she had like kind of left the area, she was like, hey, I just want to let you know I'm doing really well.、Wow. And I haven't had any suicidal thoughts for like three years. And it was just mind blowing. That's、me. amazing. So, I, I have a lot of hope even for the, the worst, the worst cases. You know,、yeah. I, there's, in my mind, there's no case that is hopeless. Yeah. That's amazing. I, there's so many places my thoughts are going right now. So, going back really quickly, because I want to come back to the different types of treatment and that there are evidentially. Proven treatments that can work, that can help. It's not like this, like, oh, we're just going to go in and talk and something's going to happen there. Because that's what people think. They don't know what treatment actually is when we say it, you know?、Um, so I want to get back to that. So, one of the things that I see a lot when it comes to, I guess, 
maybe the basics of anxiety, depression, even bipolar disorder, because that comes up a lot for me, at least in my circle of community and talking about it. I think that there's an oversimplification and that's what leads to a lot of assumptions and stigma where depression is kind of equated to as sadness and anxiety is just seen as worry. Bipolar is just seen as mood swings. And because people don't really fully understand what it is, um, the clinical side of it, it's just like, you know, that's when it comes, oh, it must be all in your head or all you have to do are these things that might alleviate a person's sadness or alleviate a person's worry, but that's totally different than someone who is having a clinical or medical experience when it comes to mental health. So maybe talking more about what, you know, severe anxiety looks like and what clinical depression looks like to help people differentiate that, you know. Yeah. So let's start with depression. Yeah. Um, so there's Siggy caps. So sleep, um, increased, decreased. So sometimes they're sleeping, you know, all of a sudden they're sleeping 16 hours a day. Sometimes it's only a couple hours a day, like four hours a day or so. Mm. Interest is decreased. So often they'll have like no pleasure in anything. So it's like they don't enjoy watching TV. They don't want to enjoy watching Netflix. They don't enjoy um, things that used to bring them joy, right? So I always ask them, what are the things that you used to enjoy in the past? Oh, hanging out with friends. Okay, but you haven't been hanging out with friends? No, I, I just don't, I don't care. Um, guilt. So there's this overwhelming guilt. Uh, and it's guilt that's an irrational guilt. Like any, even if you were a religious person and you were listening to this person's guilt, you, you would immediately think in your head, like, oh, this is not like healthy guilt. Okay, this is guilt about everything and anything. Okay. Energy is down. Okay. Uh, so, it's like some of the people like they just feel like even even getting up and making food is like a, a complete burden okay focus is really poor and so if they were able to read they can't read books or if they were able to watch a tv show for 30 minutes straight they can't even watch a tv show for 30 minutes straight um appetite is either increased or decreased now it's not like anorexia where like they're choosing to not eat these people are, are they just lose the interest to eat and sometimes there's like a 40 or 80 pound like weight loss. And um, I've had even patients like who become catatonic and catatonic patients like sometimes lose the drive to drink. So I had a patient who literally like the first big aha moment for his family was he fell over after standing up quickly and like, what's wrong with him? Why isn't he drinking? Why isn't he eating? Why has he lost to like 50 pounds? And um, so appetite. Psychomotor agitation or psychomotor retardation. So psychomotor agitation is the person will just, they, they look like they're visibly um, distressed, like they're moving around a lot, like they're just constant motion. They're just agitated all the time. Or psychomotor retardation is their body literally slows down. Mm -hmm. And like, I've had people who like are walking down the hall and it takes them like 10 minutes to walk down the hall. Like, and they can't speed up. It's like everything slows down. And that, that can be true in like catatonia. But at the same time, when you like stand in front of them, you feel like this intense like fear or anxiety. And catatonia is like one of those interesting things that like, like it's, it's a medical like emergency in psychiatry. Like this person needs to be treated um, either with high dose Ativan or 
ECT, you know, like shock therapy, like that, that can get people out of this state. Um, so catatonia. And then the last one is suicidality. So there are some people who have suffered suicidality starting in adolescence. Um, that is not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who have like all of a sudden, you know, all of these symptoms plus they're like, I just don't feel like I really want to live anymore. Okay. That's passive suicidality. And then they start thinking about thoughts like, how am I going to kill myself? And they, they might start looking it up on the web and then they might, might start developing a plan. Okay. There's impulsive suicidal acts like break up with a boyfriend and all of a sudden I want to hurt myself. I like take some pills, right? That's very different than like a, sort of this chronic, like progressive depression that leads to someone who is um, starting to develop suicidal plans and intent and thought on how they're going to do it. And they're giving away things and they're planning to go to like a hotel and they've bought the gun. You know, this is like night call nine one one, have a, have a policeman evaluate this first person, like right away, please. Like if you're a pastor and this is what you're hearing, uh, the person hasn't drinking in like two months and they've lost like 50 pounds. You know, if you can't get them to the emergency room, call 911, please like tell the policeman everything you heard, tell them you're scared that this person's going to kill themselves. And they'll, they'll, you know, a psychiatric hospital is sometimes the most loving thing you can do in a situation like that. If they won't receive treatment, if they won't receive help, you know, if they won't go, if they won't voluntarily like help themselves at that point, they probably don't have the capacity to help themselves because their brain is not their brain. So what we've also found, and some people will say like, oh, they've never found any correlates between depression and like changes in any biological system. And that's just not true. Like in severe depression, like if someone actually kills themselves, like they look at those brains and those brains are sick brains. And those brains are um, low in serotonin breakdown products. Those brains are, um, you know, the, 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 the hippocampus has shrunken down from like months and months of being in the state. Um, there sometimes is like these white plaques that are, that are found even in, even in, um, you know, 20 year olds. And there's, um, there's, there's damage to that brain. So that is a sick brain. We don't want people to be in that state of depression. We want to get them out of that. So treatment doesn't, isn't just start this medication. And then you come back in like a year. Treatment isn't you start this medication, you come back and like, you like, you like come back frequently. Okay. Ideally until right. you're no longer depressed. Right. And so a lot of primary care physicians, if they, you know, they may just treat and then see the person back in four months, see the person back in four months and they don't really get them out of the depression. So this is where I get passionate because there's so many things that we can do. We can, you know, psychotherapy, the intensive outpatient programs, the partial programs, medications, and then, um, as well as that, you know, exercise, diet, lifestyle, mm -hmm. um, you know, doing things that they used to enjoy, even if they don't enjoy it, right? So sometimes I'll create like a behavioral list of things that gave them a sense of meaning and purpose, not screen time in the past, and see if they can schedule those things into their day, like behavioral activation therapy, right? Or doing some basic cognitive behavioral therapy. It's like, it's like on the second episode of my podcast, I go through cognitive distortions. So mm -hmm, looking mm -hmm. at those thoughts that are coming to their brain, putting them on trial, um, taking those thoughts to trial like a, a good lawyer would. So I don't know. Is that? No, that's, I'm so glad that you brought up the part of basically a, a sick brain, because I think that 
That is what is not so understood. I mean, I've had even some personal conversations with some friends where I had to explain to them, the mind is not just this existential place, right? It's all a part of the brain. (laughs) The brain influences thinking and behavior and thought patterns and along with the body. Um, And so when someone is in a clinical state, that there is a biological uh, process that's going on there, right? It's not just a matter of willpower, like you said. It's not just, it's not, it might not be within their capacity and they need that extra aid or that extra treatment. And so maybe talking a little bit more to the biological aspects that are going on with depression, anxiety, bipolar, you know, um, to bring more, what's the word I'm thinking of? Awareness. Awareness and concreteness, I want to say, to something that's very abstract for people to understand. Here's what I'll do. I'll give you a couple PowerPoint slides. Um, You can put it in the article you write with this and put it on your website. Some of the citations. Because there are articles that are showing, you know, um, issues with, uh, for example, BDNF. So brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Have you heard heard of this? From your... Episode. From my episode. Okay. Yeah. So BDNF decreases in depression. And if someone committed suicide and you look at their brain, it's lower in that person's brain. Um, it is like miracle growth for the brain when you have it. You need this. And, um, you know, what po- people don't realize is that um, there's genes. Okay. So you're born with potentially damage to this area. Okay. Damage the pathway. That's possible. But more likely, is there's epigenetic issues. Mm-hmm. So epigenetics is when the the DNA, so this like this book of this is what the cells are going to make, um, decides to put a little lock on it. And so we're not going to produce anything from that part of the book. And there's different epigenetic things that happen, our environment, um, some of the choices we choose to do, like the types of foods we eat, exercise, that changes the epigenetics. And it takes about six weeks for your genes to change. And so there was a really nice study, for example, by um, Dean Ornish, who put people on like a, uh, like a lifestyle, like exercise. He put them on a new diet. And there wasn't just like two genes that changed. It was literally like thousands of genes changed. But it takes weeks, right? Um, and so BDNF is found lower in brains that are sick brains that are like people who committed suicide. And there's different ways of increasing this. So one is antidepressants have been shown to increase BDNF. Um, things like uh, lithium or clozapine, you know, the mood stabilizer, antipsychotics. So there's different categories of the drugs that improve things in different states, different mental illness states that people may have. And then there's um, treatments like exercise. Um, there was this, you know, both cardio and strength training are important for depression. I think they actually can be synergistic. So it's probably good to have a little bit of both, like two days of strength training, two days of cardio, and then diet. So like things like nuts, things like the Mediterranean diet, olive oil. Um, This is very neuroprotective, right? Neuroprotective in that the people who change their diet are less likely to have future episodes of depression as well. Okay. Um, I want to emphasize here, though, that there are a lot, there's a lot of misinformation about mental health and what's going to improve mental health out there. And um, 
like there's just so many opinions out there about like, you know, oh, take this essential oil or I don't think essential oils, like there's no studies showing essential oils are going to improve mental health. There just aren't. If it's, I'm especially sorry if, if it's clinical or biological. Okay. So how we find out what is helpful right. is we take two groups of people, both with the mental illness. We put one pe- one group of the people on this new treatment and we put the other group of people on no treatment mm-hmm. or but we add a placebo. So we give them a pill and we say, take this pill. It's, this pill is going to help you. And so the doctor doesn't even know which of the pills are the helpful pills. So that's, so you're controlling for that person influencing things. Cause if it was mm-hmm. just having a doctor give you a pill is going to help you. Um, even if the pill is not helpful. And then we look at how the one treatment separates from the treatment that is basically the placebo. Right. And so we're just trying to continually learn what actually helps. And, um, that's kind of how, like, that's how, that's how we're trained to assess what is helpful treatments. And so there are no like essential oil. Like there was one, I I even looked at like lavender and all that stuff. Um, but this is given in the church. This was given at at actually a local church. Are definitely a big thing. Oh, local church out here. Local church out here. No, it was like, it was like basically at my church. Oh, there was like, there was like, um, Oh, wait, you're a, a person giving essential oils for depression. And I was I like, see. I was like, this is don't, don't go see a psychiatrist. And I like, oh, I, no. don't go see a therapist. Here's some essential oils. We'll continue to talk. And it's like, Oh no, luckily they, they, sh- they shut this one person down, you know? So it wasn't yeah. like, it wasn't like the head pastor, thank God. Right. But, but there are people who start to believe. There's get, a lot of, like the, you said, information out there that's just. It's it's just like, it's scary. And it is so, scary because it's if it's not helpful, then that just it's a creates more ho- hopelessness. It's a placebo. Placebos work. Yeah. Even, Where, yeah. And so placebos work a lot of the time for a while. But it's not what's actually, it's, it's not, not sustaining. like. It's not sustaining. Yeah. So, okay, I don't know. Are we getting off topic? <laughs> no, you're good. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about essential oils and like it's helped in the sense of like a moment of anxiety where it just kind of like relieves. But if I was having chronic anxiety, like panic attacks, you know, maybe helps bring you to your senses. But dealing with that long-term kind of treatment, like you're saying, it's totally different. Okay, it helps because if it the, the smell is calming to exactly. you. Exactly. If it reminds you of yeah. other times of calmness, and if you believe it's going to help, then maybe maybe it's good treatment for in you. In the moment. And you know what? Like, yeah. there, there have been doctors that I respect that have given placebos in the past. You know, we, we're not legally allowed to do that anymore. <laughs> but um, it, it makes sense for some people. But let me, let's, let's come back to like, okay, we're trying to understand yeah. what, this, what this brain mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I would say medications or therapy pick one like if you're really really depressed um, maybe with the exception of catatonia bipolar and we should probably go over like why bipolar is way overdiagnosed um, and why most of it's not real bipolar that's so crazy that you said that because someone literally left a comment on my instagram the other day and was like can we talk about why bipolar is overdiagnosed okay here's my two cents yeah two cents okay so there is a grouping of diseases that was talked about way back when Freud was around, which was basically PTSD, so trauma, um, borderline personality disorder, 
So chronic suicidality starting in adolescence, chaotic interpersonal relationships, um, affect dysregulation. So maybe 5% of the time feeling uh, normal, the rest of the time either anxious or depressed or down and um, you know, huge amounts of conflict around relationships and then somatic symptoms and somatic symptoms of like, um, you know, shaking uncontrollably, which is like no seat with no seizure activity. So that we call that now psychogenic seizures or non-epileptic psychogenic seizures, PNES. Um, so they had all three of these PTSD, borderline personality disorder, somatic symptoms. They called it hysteria. Right. Okay. Yeah. And this still exists and it's over time, over the history is called different things, but it's the same thing. Okay. And once you understand that, you'll see how the name changes. So it, for example, in the eighties, it was like multiple personality disorder, and then it was borderline personality disorder. And then it became really stigmatized to have those labels. Right. And once it gets too stigmatized, then the name changes. So the name changes to, um, bipolar. And so there is true bipolar. And so I would say, how do you know if someone's truly bipolar? They've had an episode that has either ended in death or something close to death, uh, a jail or a psychiatric hospital. Like an, a, unless they get treatment, like an antipsychotic and a mood stabilizer, like lithium, like outpatient early on, like that, those are the three places it ends, okay? And then if they were hospitalized, they were usually hospitalized for more than three days because every single true bipolar patient you know, and this is what this is what their symptoms are. They stop sleeping. They um, they're grandiose, so they are on a special mission, a special purpose. So, if you ask someone, "Oh, what are you doing when you're not sleeping?" and they say, "Oh, I'm watching the computer. I'm on social media," like that's not bipolar. Okay, that's something else. Um, so, true bipolar is doing grandiose things, like I'm connecting the mind calendar with quantum physics, and I need to alert President Trump so that he can save the world. Um, because President Trump is God, you know that's true bipolar, okay? right? And and they're talking a lot faster, and they're up in the middle of the night, and they're not sleeping. So it's not like this goes on for like three days straight and then they crash. Like this is going on for like it's progressively getting worse until it ends in a psychiatric hospital, a jail, or a suicide attempt. Okay, so the problem is is when you're a psychiatrist or a therapist, um, they may not remember the last part of their manic episode. Because it was like literally like their brain is on fire. You know, the, the memory doesn't consolidate in a normal way. They may remember that they ended up in a psychiatric hospital, but like, why were they there? Right? So usually someone with true bipolar, they're normal when they're not manic or not depressed. So they have these periods of normality. Okay. And a true bipolar doesn't start with adolescent passive suicidality starting like when they were 12, 13, 14. Like that's the hysteria, sort of the borderline precise order. Okay. I don't really like labels. So I don't tell a lot of patients what they are unless it's going to hurt them not to tell them. Um, unless, unless the treatment that they need to get, it's like, hey, this is not the correct treatment. Um, for example, if, if someone does, okay, so, okay, jump back a second. So if they have, if they don't have bipolar, but they have something more like borderline precise order, trauma, I think it's largely from um, a really difficult childhood and trauma. And so I think it's actually probably better to call it something like complex trauma, 
Okay. And the treatment that is most effective for this, these people is um, treatment that takes a couple years and there's very strong connections between them and their provider. And, you know, the three treatments are dialectical behavioral therapy, mentalization-based therapy, transference-focused therapy. All of these therapies, when they started, like were like one-year to two-year-long treatments with good follow-up. And something like mentalization-based therapy, um, pretty much everyone, like 80%, no longer met criteria for borderline personality disorder by the end of the seven years, seven years after. And so effective treatment can reverse it, okay? And most of those people had gotten off of the majority of their medications. Mm. So the medications are there only to stabilize. And then as they got the necessary therapy, their symptoms improved. Now, if I've known people who have had borderline personality disorder who had not, who did not get therapy, but had a really good pastor. Mm. And that was effective treatment. I've also known people in the church who create a lot of chaos with that diagnosis because sometimes they do splitting. And if, if you don't have patience, if you don't have empathy, it, it, can, it can be tough. But I would say a lot of the people who, are, who have the chronic suicidality starting in adolescence, who get plugged into a good community, a healthy community, it, their symptoms can improve. Sometimes without the, you know, what we think of like traditional treatments at this point, like psychotherapy or medications. You know, so I do see that in the community. I've seen that in my sort of uh, personal life. I've seen people improve, but they usually don't do well if they don't have secure attachments inside the church. So it's like, um, they, you know, it, it's like really important for them to get connected with someone who's empathic in the church. And so that I get passionate about like, don't put someone who's not empathic in a place where they're ministering to people, you know? Because the opposite effect is that it could make it get worse and escalate if it's too just harsh, judgmental, misunderstanding, disconnected. Yeah. Or they don't. In a place where they're expecting to feel safe and be met. Yeah. Especially. Yeah. And that's, that, that is something I'm really passionate about. And that's why I like. Same. I'm like, you know, you have to find the right people. So it's like there's a certain type of person that you want meeting with your families. If if you're like, like they're probably higher empathy, they probably have a lot of natural kindness and love. Um, they're probably you know warm and have close relationships that are long and longitudinal. You know that's the type of person you recruit to do sort of like that the pastoral ministry, that people work. Yeah, because empathy and the ability to build connections is a lot of psychotherapy. You know, so right. that, that's so. That's another one of my passions. Like, like we have to have my, like a whole this separate is, conversation this is, on that alone. <laughs> this, this alone is um, is something I get really fired up about because yeah. there's all these different schools of thoughts of different types of psychotherapies, mm -hmm. but there's this thing called therapist effect, which is you can look at therapists, and even within a school of therapy, there are therapists who will be doing better therapy and therapists who will be doing. Worst therapy. And by worst therapy, I mean, there are some therapists in these studies who patients actually get worse, like, like mm. the two worst out of like a hundred therapists. Right. But there's some therapists who are literally helping their patients like 10 times more than the average therapist. And so I want to study and I want to train my residents and medical students and the people who are wanting to minister to people. How do you improve those skills? That's what I get fired up about. That's what I get passionate about. And some of them are like training people how to be more empathic, 
how to build stronger connections. Um, Those are commonalities. Higher social IQ. You know, they showed in this one study, they showed video clips of um, difficult interpersonal interactions to therapists, and they had them pretend like it was an actual session, and they recorded their responses, and they graded their responses. And the best responses correlated with better outcomes with real patients, and the worst responses correlated with worst outcomes with real patients. And so just the ability to respond to difficult interpersonal exchanges Mm -hmm. in a better way, um, one that can be trained. And I I know that because I train residents. And by the time they're finished from first year to fourth year, like they're better at it. And some of them are really good. And that changes every single interaction they have in the future, which is what gets me excited because that's like a ripple effect. Right. right. If you can train one person to be better at this and then they interact with, you know, 10,000 people over the, the course of their life in a professional setting, like that's a big impact. That's huge. And I mean, just I'm thinking in my own personal experiences in the situations where I maybe hit a low, you know, having those empathetic people around. I mean, it just got me out of a out of an episode you know, so much, a low episode so much faster than if I had gone through it alone or had I been around people who just weren't empathetic toward where I was. Let me define empathy real quick. Please, yes. Because I've heard pastors um, think that empathy is not important. And it's partially because empathy has gotten some, there's a difference between the research words that is empathy, like the, how we define empathy in the literature, the scientific literature, and how like it's commonly used in the common vernacular. I see. So so empathy is not um, taking on someone else's burden. Okay. That's, that's more like um, uh, emotional contagion. Okay. Where you, the emotions are contagious. And so they come in there depressed and you get depressed from that. That's, that's not, that's what happened to me when I was a medical student. I actually got really depressed when I was in the psychiatric hospital. Um, not when I was working in the psychiatric hospital. I would come home and I'd be like, why do I feel so depressed? Like, I normally don't feel like this. Right. It's just because I'm picking up that affect, right? Um, so empathy is not that. Empathy is not um, fixing someone's problem necessarily. So I think it does fix their problem, but not in the way that you would think. So it's not like giving them advice, so like an empathic person doesn't like you say, oh, I'm having a bad day. Oh, did you exercise? Did you do this? Did you do that? Did you, did you read your Bible? Do you, you know, that's not empathy, right? Um, empathy is understanding their perspective, understanding where they're coming from, understanding their emotions and relaying it back to them in a way where they say, I feel understood. I feel heard. I feel felt. Um, that's empathy. And so some people have a harder time with empathy when they're stuck in their own brains, so mm-hmm. two types of people that the primary psychopath, psychopath uh, has low affective empathy. So they don't feel other people's emotions in the way that a normal person would feel them. And then, you know, sometimes people who are narcissistic have some of those traits. Um, they have some of that primary psychopathy. So they really just don't feel other people's emotions. Yeah. And then the second type of person who has lower empathy is like someone who has autism or high functioning autistic. They, they have low cognitive empathy. And so they're feeling the emotions of another person. They just don't know how to put it into words in a way to communicate that they're feeling that in a way, you know? So they'll start stemming and start like wigging, like start getting aggressive maybe when mom and dad are fighting, but they, um, but they're not able to put words to the emotions in a way that a normal person would. 
Okay. Yeah. So that's what, so empathy is feeling into another person's experience um, in a way that communicates that to them. And in a way where they would say, I feel understood. I feel heard. Yeah. I think that's very biblical. Um, just bringing that back into the, a lot of things that you're saying for us tie into what would be called the fruits of the spirit. And it's kind of the basics, right? Patience, kindness, uh, long suffering, not boasting, you know, uh, or um, Jesus wept, right? There Jesus, you go. On the, on the road to Lazarus, Jesus meets a woman who um, he cares about. She's suffering. And instead of saying, silly woman, I'm going to go heal your, you know. Your brother. Your brother. Yeah. He says, he, he emotes, he cries, you know, um, which is really interesting. And I actually think sometimes when he cut into the core of someone's who they actually were, that's a form of empathy as well. Because sometimes empathy can be telling someone the truth about them that even they don't quite understand. It's a deeper level of empathy. I think it's more advanced. Don't do that right away. And it right takes away. like some it takes serious some skill. grace and maneuvering for of sure. Yeah. Of course. But it's, um, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And scripturally, we're called to be gentle with those who are weaker. Just like emotionally, whether it's in a moment or a season. And so I think that this has total foundation in truth. Here's what I find interesting about some churches, though, okay? Is they create a dominance hierarchy that's outside of, like, just, like, do they have the fruits of the Spirit? Love, peace, joy, kindness, patience, self-control, right? Do they have these things? Um, Instead, it's like, do they have this this particular understanding of this set of doctrine? Or do they have this particular pedigree of, um, you know, experiences or things, right? And so people move up the hierarchy in churches, not based on showing fruit, but based on some of these other things. And I think that's why Now you're preaching. Sometimes people, you, you, you resonate with that? Yes. It's like, it's like, look for the people who are life-giving, right? And um, consider putting those people as the people that you send people to. You know, if this one person was to have their isolated little church, an isolated little community, would that be a thriving community or would that not be a thriving community? Is that, would that be a community that you right. would want to be part of or not be a part of? Um, and it's hard when you have to make judgments on people, right? I don't, I hate that aspect of my <laughs> career is, is some medical student and having to say how high I grade them in something, you know, when they come interview or something, I really dislike that. I would like to, I would like to um, champion everyone, right? But when you put people in positions of power where they have influence over, over other people and determine if this person, a group of people is going to get well or not, like you have to make judgments and making judgment based on some of those foundational concepts of like, does this person have love in their life? Do they have joy? Um, it's, those are, those are important questions. Those are key questions. Yeah. And because I don't want to take up too much more of your time, um, I just want to ask two final questions. Okay. Let's do it. I don't know how well we can wrap this, but the first question is, I don't want to, not to backtrack, but yes, to backtrack. There's a lot of, and I would, this is some, a conversation I think that needs to be heard from the other side of the psychiatrist's table, so to speak. There's a lot of mistrust around medication and overprescribing, especially in the church. We're both church people. So you could probably relate to both sides or have heard both sides. You have dual perspectives. Dual perspective. Dual perspectives. Between two worlds. You're between two worlds. There we go. So 
Yeah, there medication I think is one of the topics that just comes up for me so much where people feel like if they're taking it, they're betraying their faith or or there's this mistrust because either it's overprescribed or it's not working or they're being put on so many to try to find the right one. And that's difficult because obviously there is that side where in a lot of cases it is needed just like any other illness in order to treat, to get better, uh, to live a functional life. Um, but also having that healthy relationship with medication and what a healthy psychiatrist's approach to medication would be. Yeah. And so this is, this is my passion. I mean, you could, you could go through my psychiatry podcast and you could see kind of my thought process and, and, and how I think about this. And I really do think about it from like a holistic perspective of like, you know, therapy, medications, um, exercise, lifestyle, um, all of those things are important. What I would say is when I see the most severe of severe cases, it's like they don't have any energy to go exercise. Um, they won't even like get up from their bed, you know? And so it's, it's difficult. You know, sometimes you start with medications, you get someone to a place where they can start going to psychotherapy and then they start doing psychotherapy and then they get to a place where they can start exercising. And so I like to work with people longitudinally where like, you know, after months, they're to a place where they're out of their depression and then they start to hopefully move towards some of their goals and desires. And, and then, um, you know, once, once someone is out of their depression, like let's say it's just the first episode of depression and they're completely out after six months, you can start to bring them down on medications and go slow. Cause remember every six weeks you have epigenetic changes. So there's changes in the brain and those changes both, both help the medications work and they help they change when people get off the medication. So I like to make medication changes slow, um, outpatient. And so we make an adjustment, check in six weeks later, see how it's going. It's going okay. Okay, let's go down a little bit more. Um, I, I, I'm critical of some of the prescribing habits of people out there. We, um, like benzodiazepines as a class, things like Xanax, Clonopin, uh, Valium, you know, these types of medications uh, used to be prescribed heavily. Uh, you know, Valium was, I think, the first billion-dollar drug. Um, we have found that these decrease cognitive function. So there's this other aspect called sensorium, total brain function, um, which decreases with certain types of medications, opiates, benzos, anticholinergic medications like Benadryl. Um, so your total brain function decreases. Like, you after a while, you like, you are not your brain anymore. You are not yourself. And so, you know, there, there are medications that can make you feel more yourself. And there are medications that can actually bring you away from being yourself. Um, and so I think, you know, it's a conversation that's probably more nuanced than we'll be able to hash out in these last couple minutes. Um, but maybe we could do a part two on that and go through each <laughs> class of medications and talk about like, when it when it's overprescribed, when it's underprescribed, um, but what I what I would say is that if you're concerned about the, the medications that you're on, or if you're concerned about the medications that someone else is on, you know, um, part of that is I I would have that concern as well. Like if I wasn't a psychiatrist, I would have that sort of stigma against myself. You know, I st I still like 
you know, like there's still like sometimes where I'm like, ah, oh, I don't really want it. But it's like, it's, you know, like, is this severe enough to start it? Is this person going to get better? What I want to do is I want to develop a plan that gets per- someone better, that gets someone out of the depression, out of the, you know, and then, you know, if they are true bipolar, so if they've had these episodes that I described as true bipolar, or if they're truly schizophrenic, they have this positive, they've had the negative symptoms, um, not just when they're using drugs, right? When they're like totally sober and they, they have those symptoms, uh, then they'll probably need to be on meds to some degree and be in contact with the psychiatrist the rest of their life. Like, so there are those diseases, um, like schizophrenia, like that I think, um, getting stabilized on meds and then having meds on board long-term is like, it's a total blessing to be able to do that. You know, I've, I've one patient right now who's on a medication called clozapine is for treatment resistant schizophrenia. Uh, it's, it's the only one that really is for treatment resistance. So they've failed three or four antipsychotics already. And he got on it. He was able to complete his, um, bachelor's and go on to professional school and he's doing okay. He's doing good. So he can go on and live a normal life. Like this guy was homeless. This guy was living on the street for a period of his life. And, um, he was also kind of on and off drugs. And, um, the final topic we really haven't even hit on, but probably is one of the most important is things that will hurt you. Like hurt, hurt you, not help you move you backwards. Um, they might stabilize you for a moment, but then move you backwards, right? And so those are the classes like the opiates, like unless you have cancer, like, you know, there are other options, okay? Cancer-related pain, different category. Um, But opiates is that we have an opiate epidemic and more people died of opiates last year than people who died of car accidents. Mm. And so we have an opiate epidemic. It's higher than the suicide rate at this point. we that causes more isolation people move away people stop connecting with other people who are on opiates chronically so you know evaluate with your physician this is a conversation between you and your physician i can't tell you over this podcast whether it's a good (laughs) fit for you right but evaluate with with your physician are there other options for treatment that are like physical therapy um you know and then realize like the first couple months are always going to be tough right um, so opiates, benzodiazepines as a class, I would say red flags, right? Be careful. Um, now there are some disorders that it's very helpful for like catatonia out of is the treatment. It's a benzodiazepine. Um, so there's some nuance here, right? But in general, that the, these sedating, heavily sedating medications that make your brain different are not going to be the best long-term fit to thrive. Right, right. Thank you for bringing that up and for categorizing that too, because um, just going back, the brain is a physical organ and just like someone with say diabetes or something of the sort or heart disease, let's say, may need medication for that organ, possibly for the rest of their lives so that they can still live and have a thriving life to be able to do more in the world and be impactful. It could very well be the same case when it comes to mental illness or mental health disorders. And like you said, this patient being able to go on to school and live a fully functioning life after getting off the streets. Yeah. 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 Diabetes is a great example. We sometimes have patients with uncontrolled diabetes come into our program. Yeah. And they, they're working with an endocrinologist. Like their diabetes is brittle. Their numbers are really, really high. With the therapy, 
their chronic stress comes down mm -hmm. and they're able to control their diabetes. Okay. They're going to need insulin the rest of their life. They have diabetes. Um, lifestyle changes, exercise, eating healthy diet, getting the therapy, all of that helps, right? Yeah. But they're still going to have the illness. The illness doesn't completely go away. Some psychiatric illnesses are like that. Like they're probably going to struggle to some degree. Um, some are things that, you know, with the right combination of things, like you can have a resolution. Yeah. And so I just have so much hope for people who struggle, you know, and there are a lot of people who struggle and it's, it's like, it's not, yeah, coming back to it, it's not like mm -hmm. you can just tell them it's all in your brain. You just need to stop thinking about it. It's like, yeah, okay. They, they might be able to make a choice. The choice might be to change their environment to get effective treatment. That might be a choice they make. That um, is a choice. That's a choice. Yeah. 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 And I'm so glad you're saying all this because um, there are there are resources, basically, is what you're talking about. And I think that for a lot of people who aren't familiar with the psychiatric world, with the mental health world, just haven't gone down that road before, they're not aware of all these resources in ways that severe mental health disorders can be treated. They can be treated. Someone can live a fully functioning life and recover from all of this with the right care. And I think that's kind of the the upside that I'm I'm taking from all of this. Sometimes talking about these things can seem very heavy and dark, but the upside is that, no, there are resources, there are ways to treat that are proven, that are effective. And while they're different for everyone, like you said, even the, the, the darkest patients' cases, you have hope for it. There can be improvement. Yeah. Yeah, there can be improvement and people can find a life um, that's more worth living or a life that they enjoy more or they can they can they can get to a place where they can at least meet some of their needs like even the sickest patients that i've treated you know they're they're in a much better place than they were before yeah um yeah and so yeah thank you so much for taking the time and inviting me into your space and sharing all of this. Is there anything else that you're doing or working on or links or resources where people can connect to you? Yeah. So I'm pretty, I mean, I'll, I'll let you link to my like Instagram <laughs> and this psychiatry podcast.com has mm -hmm. a list of the episodes that we've done. And, you know, I think if you're, if you're seriously curious about these things, um, you know, um, check, check out the podcast. That's probably a good place to start. Um, yeah. And thank you so much for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. I think, you know, in kind of reflecting on what we've talked about, we've talked about a lot of really important things. And yeah. um, I hope that if you're listening to this and you've taken something away of value, um, you know, shoot us a DM, let us know. We, we, I, I don't know about you, but I love to hear from I, people and yeah. what their thoughts are and, you know. Yeah. And, and who knows? It could evolve into future future episode i feel like there's so many more conversations to be had but i'm appreciative of this one uh thanks so much guys until next time